My name is Rachel Reiner, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. If you hold an assumption that the mountains are a neutral space and that everyone's welcome there, it means you've never felt deeply intimidated or unwelcome, you know, from other humans in the mountains. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your Canadian correspondent, Wes Gregg. I'm excited to be contributing to every third Thursday of the podcast. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, this is it. The final third Thursday and final episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast for this season. Thank you so much to Caleb and you the listeners for letting me be a part. My last contribution for the season was another guest recommendation. PhD candidate Rachel Reimer. Rachel's current PhD project is a comparative study of leadership, diversity, and inclusion in the avalanche and mountain professions. In our conversation, we go over her background and discuss her progress in her research. Please enjoy my conversation with Rachel Reimer. Hey, Rachel, how's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Oh, good. Good. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we can, we can probably just jump into it because I, I imagine you have a pretty jam packed schedule. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we'll get started here and to start, let's just uh, find out about who you are and what your current role is. Sure thing. Well, uh, my name is Rachel Reimer. I'm, uh, the co-chair of the diversity and inclusion committee with the association of Canadian mountain guides. Uh, I am a certified guide as well, apprentice hiking guide and top rope climbing instructor, and I'm a candidate in the apprentice ski guide program. Um, So I've worked in the mountains, uh, guiding in some capacity in Canada for the last five years and had uh, a stint working abroad as a rock guide uh, in China, um, teaching climbing. So I've been working in the outdoor industry for a while. And previous to that, led a fire crew with the British Columbia Wildfire Service. And so my mountain-based interests also dovetail with my research interests. So I'm a sociologist. I do research on human behavior in the mountain professions. And I do research within the communities that I'm also a part of. So as a professional in wildland fire and in the guiding profession, I I also do research. at a graduate and postgraduate level. And what fascinates me most is how humans behave in teams in the mountains. Let's go back to where you grew up and how you got started in the sport of skiing. Uh, Certainly, I grew up in uh, Southern Ontario, just north of Toronto. And I actually got started skiing here in Revelstoke in Rogers Pass. Um, And I also would like to acknowledge that the area now where I, I live and ski and what actually first drew my attention to skiing as a passion um, is on the unceded uh, tra- traditional and, and ancestral lands of the Tunaha, Sequetmik, uh, Sioux and Sinaiq peoples, uh, to whom I'm incredibly grateful 
for the work of stewardship and preservation of the mountains that I, I get to plan right now. And at age 19, when I very first uh, climbed my way up to the Asulkan call, uh, Asulkan, which means wild goat, mm-hmm. um, one of the few indigenous names in Rogers Pass, uh, I really actually didn't know how to ski. I was kind of learning how to ski on the way down, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, was fairly hilarious for my friends and colleagues, but uh, it was really Rogers Pass that captured my imagination. Um, Previous to that, growing up in Southern Ontario, I was a snowboarder, um, a very bad one, and uh, mostly played around in the park. Um, And it wasn't until my late teens, early 20s that I actually turned to skiing. Um, And actually climbing stole my heart for a while and I chased summers around the the globe for a little bit and then um, about eight years ago settled in Revelstoke for good and skiing has been one of my primary um, sports professions, kind of the focal point of my life for the last eight years. Oh, wow. That's crazy. I never thought I would meet somebody that has a similar story to my partner, who of which I also taught to ski in the backcountry before we got married and uh it was gonna it was gonna be a decision maker as to whether or not our relationship was gonna survive because i had no idea that she had no idea how to ski and brought her up to the mountains because she climbed well and found out yeah that uh that uh, she had no idea how to ski so that's funny how did you find that challenge did you end up snow plowing your way down kind of the whole way or i you know i think i enjoy a steep learning curve and uh (laughs) And mostly, you know, I was a good sport, I, but I fell every two turns. I think I just, I face planted <laughs> repetitively all the way down. And uh, I still remember my friends saying, okay, uh, you have to glide now to make it. There's a downhill and then a little uphill to the Asalkin hut. And they pointed it out to me. They're like, okay, Rachel, you just have to just point your skis straight. Don't fall. So you're going to have to glide a little bit uphill. And to me, I just thought, oh gosh, that hut looks so far away. And this hill looks so steep. How am I ever going to make it? And I still think about that when I ski through there today, obviously with a much more accomplished skill set. But I just remember how deeply intimidating uh, all of that terrain was and is still to so many people who are newcomers to that area. And I, it's really incredible how far you can come. And I think really, um, you know, a lot of my research focuses around belonging. It comes up a lot in the, in the interviews and the surveys and work that I do. And I think about how grateful I was that even though my skills were so poor and I was so new to the sport, I still believed that I deserved to be there. And that if I just tried hard enough, yeah, eventually I would, I would find a way. And I think that's the real crux is, you know, the skills development, that's just, that's just a tool. That's a, a skill set that can be learned, but that inner belief that you deserve to be in the mountains, you deserve to have a learning curve. Uh, you deserve to be able to fall on your face and get back up, you know, a dozen times and, and still have someone pat you on the back at the end of the day and say, good work and not question your right to be in that space. Uh, I think that's something that I'm really grateful for. And I know not a lot of others feel or, or experience so much intimidation and the lack of support that that's where they turn away from the sport altogether. Um, so I think I'm grateful to my 19 year old self and to the friends I had who were with me on that trip who, um, 
you know, they just laughed and took photos of me face planning, but they never <laughs> made me question. <laughs> they never made me question myself. And they were super encouraging the whole time. Oh, that's amazing. That sounds like starting off with the right core group of people to to help you through that progression into the sport. And that's that's amazing. It's not too often you hear of people kind of getting into to skiing and, and getting to where you are now that late in life. Um, so then when did that transition from <laughs> learning how to ski in the backcountry happen to move into a professional career in the ski industry? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if there's a firm start and stop for me. Um, I think that coming from incident response as a as a background for me, both in wildland fire and then previous to that in humanitarian aid work, I often, um, my hobbies often turn into, you know, a way to help people or a way to connect with people. And so uh, it wasn't too many years into my skiing uh, when I, I started at Revelstoke Mountain Resort as a volunteer ski patroller. And I worked as a tail guide as well. Um, I started that winter. Um, and for me, it's very, basically, as soon as my skill set enabled me to help others, <laughs> I was doing so. And that's kind of how I characterize guiding as a profession. It's, you're not a professional skier. You are skiing professionally, mm -hmm. but you're there to take care of other people in the mountains. And so it is really a bit more of a service-oriented job than I think many imagine it to be. And for me, it was really rewarding to be able to first do the first aiding and support that ski patrol. Um, you know, that role is very focused on on safety of the public. Um, and then guiding, it's a, a smaller group of people, but you're really uh, able to impact someone's day based on how you treat them and um, the way that you support them in moving through terrain that might be at or slightly above their comfort level and, and help them have that best day of their life on skis that you ideally are providing for folks when you're out with them in the mountains as a guide. So yeah, yeah it was a, it was a few years in, I put some concerted effort into skiing and learning how to ski properly. Um, and then of course brought in all my first aid experience from wildland firefighting. And um, at that point I was leading a fire crew. So, you know, working knowledge of the incident command system and all of that, um, you know, definitely helped accelerate my uh, entry into the ski industry as a working professional. Yeah, right. No, that makes that makes total sense. And then, so I mean, you kind of already alluded to it with regards to taking hobbies or things that you're passionate about, and and whenever they relate to helping other people, how it it generally ends up being a pretty large part of your life. So then, how did the concept of of being in the mountains as a mountain professional lead into what you're currently doing with your research? Mm. Excellent question. Actually, it all brings us back to the Asulkan hut. <laughs> so uh, fast forward, you know, a decade, I know how to ski now and I'm, I'm there actually. I was on a trip with uh, two other uh, women, friends who are also firefighters. And we all worked in different areas of the province. and we were skinning up to the hut and, you know, kind of talking shop about our summer jobs, our firefighting jobs. And, and to me, 
it was super interesting that we felt safe in a mountain environment in the winter to be more vulnerable about how our firefighting um, roles made us feel uh, than I think we would have ever been if we were interacting actually in the uniform in our summer, uh, you know, wildfire professional roles. And it kind of gave us a bit of space. And when we were at the hut one night, you know, we're drinking a little bit of whiskey and kind of the shop talks getting a little more heated and we're sharing, sharing our, our deeper stories. And I remember all three of us um, had a shared experience of being told that we were, we were too strong-willed, too strong-headed. Um, and each of us had been told, uh, you know, that we didn't fit in firefighting and that we should quit, you know, at different, different points in our career, we'd, we'd all received these same messages. And I remember all of us having kind of this collective aha moment where we were just like, wait a minute, this is, this is not just me then. This is a systemic, like there's three of us sitting here from all different parts of the province. This is definitely not just about me or that specific base or those specific people. It's, it's a bigger issue. And I remember one of my friends said, someone needs to do their master's research on this and document this and, and dig into it in a deeper way so that uh, other people can have the same experience of realizing it's not just them, that this is a bigger cultural issue. And we're all like, yeah, someone should do that. And, <laughs> and then my one friend, she's like, well, I'm already in nursing school. And the one who launched the idea, she said, oh, I'm already doing my master's in forestry. And they both just looked at me and I was like, ah, oh, dang, <laughs> I felt like I'd kind of drawn the short straw, but, and, you know, we laughed it off, but to be honest, it was about 12 months later that I, I started my master's research uh, through Royal Roads University um, in leadership studies. And, uh, you know, I submitted my proposal both to the university and within the BC Wildfire Service, and it had to clear you know, six or seven levels of approval within the BC Wildfire Service. And to this day, I'm still really grateful for each of the men. And I say that intentionally, it was all men whose desks that proposal landed on and any one of them could have stopped it. Um, and they didn't, they all said, yes, we think this is a great idea uh, and pass it on to the um, director of the organization who ultimately approved it. So I was able to do research looking at gender and leadership in the wildfire service at the same time as being an employee. And that was an incredible experience for me, both the leadership studies program at Royal Roads and how it caused me to reflect on my own leadership as I was leading a fire crew um, during those two years. And then um, being able to actually use my social science research skill set in the uh, firefighting organization where I was working um, it just was such a deep and rich learning experience for me that, um, you know, now I'm, I'm doing similar, a similar study this time it's international in scope in the avalanche and guiding industry, um, as a part of my PhD studies. So it's, it's, there's something really exciting and unique about both doing the job and being out in the field and also being able to do research within an academic institution um, in the field that I work in, that's called insider action research. I do act action research. So it's focused on generating, uh, you know, actions to solve problems that a, a community identifies for itself. So um, 
you know, it was that, that community of the three of us in the Asalkan hut identifying, hey, here's, here are these shared challenges that we have. What, how do we transform the culture so that folks aren't hearing that over and over again? You know, you're, you're too strong-willed or you're too strong of a, a woman for this, um, you know, this job or this culture. Um, and so that's, it's really about a shared problem-solving tool. Right. And being on the inside and within an academic context, I think is the most fruitful. I don't think I would have had the same insights if I'd just been coming from an academic institution. And I also think that when you're in a mountain professional culture like firefighting or guiding an avalanche work, um, you're really immersed. You're up in the mountains in remote areas with your teams. And, and I think having that little bit of perspective is really useful. And that's what having a team at the university helps me with is that that perspective so that I don't get too kind of wrapped up in in my mountain life, which living in Revelstoke in a small mountain town, it can be quite easy to do. Right. Kind of get yeah, get stuck in that in that sort of tunnel vision of this is what reality is and 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 you know this is how everybody lives, right? Um so then your research started with the Wildline Fire Service, and then it pivoted into where you are now. How far are you into your current research in uh, mountain guiding and avalanche safety? Well, I completed an industry-based study, so I was hired as a consultant. I also have a consulting practice where I, I do research on targeted issues um, for industry leaders. And so I was hired by uh, all three industry associations in Canada. So the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, the Canadian Avalanche Association, and the Canadian Ski Guides Association to do a study on diversity, inclusion, and mental health in the winter of 2019. Um, And that study was actually the first time that all three industry associations had collaborated on a project of that scope. And it was really exciting to be able to both foster a spirit of collaboration and also that it was inclusivity uh, and well-being of uh, professionals in the field that was bringing all of these industry associations together. So it was really deeply rewarding. That study um, was open for a winter. It was a survey, an online survey. And so I have completed that. Those results are published and available to read on the uh, Association of Canadian Mountain Guides website. Under the diversity and inclusion tab, you can read that full report there. Um, my PhD research, which includes the United States, Canada, and New Zealand, um, looking at the guides associations, so certified guides through the New Zealand Mountain Guides Association, uh, the American Mountain Guides Association, and the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, those three, um, as well as the Avalanche Associations in each country. That study is underway it will be it's been a bit delayed with the pandemic and the world of world events that we're in at the moment um but that will launch in terms of the field work part of that uh in next year so looking at um new zealand 2022 winter and north american winter of uh 2021-22 maybe i'll get you to summarize what the current state is with regards to quality, gender, and the mental state of the industry? Definitely. Um, the findings in the 2019 study um, 
are not surprising, but I think they should give us all pause to reflect on where we're at. Um, in terms of mental health, 58% um, of guides and avalanche workers said they have mental health challenges due to their work. Um, the discrimination rate in terms of gender discrimination was one in two women in the industry experience uh, gender discrimination. And the, the way that looks for them most commonly is that their competence is questioned. So uh, women shared experience after experience of being perceived as less competent than their male counterparts. Um, and sexual harassment rates within the industry were one in three women were sexually harassed. And of those, one in two were actually physically touched inappropriately. Um, and there's a perception that sexual harassment tends to come from clients, um, especially in mechanized heli-ski industry. Uh, and in fact, harassment rates in the industry, 60% were from peers, supervisors, you know, fellow guides, and 40% was uh, from guests. Uh, for folks who were non-white or uh, non-gender binary, all of these uh, mental health harassment and discrimination rates were much higher. Um, and folks who were indigenous and ancestry um, also faced higher risk for suicide. Uh, and these are just uh, avalanche and guiding professionals within Canada. So that's that's where we're at currently. Um, when I inquired into how folks described their culture, what is mountain culture look like in the profession? Um, folks most commonly uh, describe the culture as exclusive. They used words like uh, boys club, um, you know, bro kind of behaviors, male dominated. And there was a, a real uh, focus on the culture as needing to prove oneself in order to achieve a sense of belonging. Um, so that was really interesting to me um, because it seemed that folks possessed a really good level of self-awareness in terms of the perception, okay, the culture is exclusive and here we have all these um, you know, quantitative data that's showing us the harassment, discrimination, and mental health, um, in, including you know, suicide uh, ideation. Uh, yet when I asked in the survey whether folks felt that the uh, profession was inclusive, um, people said yes. And so it's really interesting to me that we still tend to see the mountains as a space where all people are welcome. It's kind of seen as a neutral, like we're all skiing pow and giving each other high fives and it's sweet. Um, and, and there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance or, or a, a self-awareness gap, I would say, around um, mountain spaces as spaces that are exclusive where there are you know relatively high rates of harassment and discrimination and mental health challenges so so that really stood out to me not just the the quantitative statistics themselves but really how aware are we in mountain culture about ourselves in terms of how inclusive we are how exclusive we are how the culture might be experienced by someone coming in from the outside who either doesn't have a skill set with which they can prove themselves in order to right. gain entry or 
they don't have an identity um, that's uh, you know white or cisgender and would would find um, you know the exclusionary cultural norms even that much more of a barrier to entry. Um, so those were really what stood out for me from the the data set that was gathered in that 2019 study. Right, right. And then so from there, maybe we can look at what do you feel are some of the key opportunities that we can do in this current state to start to initiate change? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Self-awareness is a big one and being willing to have the conversation is is the second one. So self-awareness, I think of as an inside, like critical self-reflection, um, you know, questioning oneself is a very healthy response to hearing those sorts of statistics. Um, you know, when I when I published the report, I had a lot of, you know, friends and colleagues who are mostly older male mentors, you know, send me emails and say, gosh, I'm just, I'm thinking back over my entire career and wondering if I did the right thing in some of these different, in, you know, instances. And um, you know, maybe I should have spoken up and I didn't, and I had no idea that this sort of, um, that these types of experiences were being had by women around me at work. And I think, you know, that's a really healthy approach, that kind of critical self-reflection, um, but also being open and reaching out and having the conversation. Um, one thing that I'm seeing more recently um, on social media and specifically in mountain culture, there's Sometimes when folks speak openly about these issues, there's a bit of a sense that we're stepping outside of our lane or that we're, you know, that what's in our lane is avalanches, risk management, you know, snowpack, uh, right. skiing, like ski skills, you know. Um, and somehow the human side of being in the mountains, when we start talking about Black Lives Matter or inclusion or colonization or how climate change is going to affect our, our winter mountain playgrounds um, and how climate, change, how climate change is also intersectional. It affects um, people of color more. It affects Indigenous people more, Black people more than it does um, folks who have privilege to insulate themselves from, from climate change. So all of these topics seem to be uh, things that we're afraid to dive into. And, and I think one of the opportunities for me is to start seeing our mountain culture and our, our mountain experiences as a place where we bring the full depth and richness of what it means to be human uh, into the conversation. We're not, we're not just limited to a lane whatever that means, however you define that, but that we get to show up as our full selves and we get to have these conversations. Um, and certainly in the research community, this is this has been happening. In 2016, there was an international snow science workshop in Breckenridge, Colorado, and a group of you know several, a couple dozen, I think it was about 21 folks, published a, re a request <laughs> to the scientific community saying we want more behavioral research in the avalanche and snow science world and i really appreciated that obviously i'm a behavioral scientist and hmm. this is what i do i'm like thank you this makes getting my phd funding easier because <laughs> you've issued a very clear call for 
increased research on these subjects, but I thought, I thought that that was really a sign of the turning of the tide where, you know, in 2002, Dave McClung introduced the concept of human factors, which was excellent. That was a huge turning point in the, in the industry. And yet from 2002 until now, we haven't seen really an explosion of research that would help us understand more about the human side of decision-making. And to me, that's where we can pivot, where we can start being as excited to talk about the human side of decision-making in avalanche terrain, you know, as excited as we are to talk about snowpack and surface horror and facets and you know, the stiffness of the slab and, you know, all of these things like propagation. And I think that um, the amount of time we dedicate in our day uh, to thinking about these things is, is low and the tolerance we have for discomfort in talking about it or, um, you know, learning. I think most of us are pretty comfortable asking someone for help if we're doing something to do with snow science. We're pretty comfortable admitting that we have something to learn and that understanding a, a snowpack is a lifelong journey. Um, and I think that there's still the sense that if we're mountain professionals interacting with other humans, leadership, inclusion, diversity, mental health, these are somehow not areas of our expertise. And, and yet there's also this expectation that we should somehow just magically know how to lead well without ever having an open conversation about it or a learning curve around it. And so I think opening the conversation, um, you know, acknowledging we have lots to learn, being humble, but definitely having the conversations and asking the questions and critically self-reflecting and thinking about whether those exclusive cultural norms exist in you or in your group that you ski with or in your community where you live. Um, and if, if you only see white people who are cisgender, who kind of act like you most of the time, then that should be a bit of a red flag because that's not, you know, where is everyone else? <laughs> you know, and that's, that's definitely a question I ask myself living in, you know, a small town in British Columbia. Um, I'm, I'm excited when there are folks who have different perspectives, different identities, different backgrounds showing up here because I I hope that means they feel welcome to be here. As a social scientist, I understand the data points, uh, you know, to the fact that we have a long way to go in mountain mm -hmm. culture. Um, and I think for a lot of us, the mountains have been a place that we've sort of assumed has been a neutral zone that like, of course, everyone's welcome in the mountains. And that assumption in and of itself is privilege um, because that means that if you hold an assumption that the mountains are a neutral space and that everyone's welcome there, it means you've never felt deeply intimidated or unwelcome, you know, from other humans in the mountains, <laughs> um, you know, and I, and that's something that I think we all need to face uh, in service of creating a more inclusive mountain culture in the future. And so do you think that that sort of sometimes also stems out of just culture in general, like not even just in the mountain culture? Like if you think about how we approach things when we're either unaware or we don't feel like we belong there or anything like that. So that change 
Do you think it should initiate and start prior to going to the mountains? So say as a young, a young person and start making those changes kind of right off the hop, like having that inclusion and having that, that concept of that, you know, everything should just be accepted and, and taken in as for what it is. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that I, this is for me why I tend to focus on uh, mountain professions, because once you are a professional, like it would be unacceptable to put on a uniform and then think that you could behave in certain ways that weren't worthy of that uniform. Right. <laughs> so, you know, there's a little bit of a standard there. Um, and this for me, you know, should we start working with youth? Definitely. I, you know, I founded a nonprofit here in Revelstoke to actually live the values that I, I have and that I embody in my research, but I, I wanted to see the next generation of Revelstoke youth feel safe going to the ski hill and not feel like they're not cool enough to be there. And so I definitely, you know, I put a lot of time and energy and volunteer hours into connecting youth in inclusive ways with the mountain environment. However, um, you know, when I'm not taking kids out skiing in the backcountry and I'm wearing a, you know, a guide's jacket or I'm, you know, out and about skiing and folks know, you know, my affiliation or where I am. I, I also think that as adults in mountain culture, we need to face these things. Um, and I mean, the other piece for me is that this is not just, you know, why would we do the work to own up to our exclusivity and the ways that we have privilege, the ways that, you know, the mountains have been part of this colonial narrative where only white men go there hmm. and are celebrated and all the peaks have like white colonial politicians names on them. You know, this, we've had one type of a story told to us about the mountains and it's important to disrupt that story and to introduce more richness and complexity and depth, um, not just because it's the right thing to do, which it is, it's, <laughs> you know, it's based, this is based on human rights, if we're mm -hmm. honest. Yeah. Also, the other piece that's come up for me when I look at professional teams making decisions, it is catastrophic for our safety to have exclusionary cultural norms that are just unquestioned. It is absolutely catastrophic. And, and I can explain that a little bit because when we manage risk in teams, we are, uh, what we need is to have as much perspective as possible on the risk and the, the hazard that we're engaging with. And so if we have created a culture where some folks deserve to be there more than others. And some folks um, have more power, social power in a group than others. And where a certain type of masculinity or strength is seen as better than other types of uh, ways of being, then we are shooting ourselves in the foot because we will ignore alternatives. We will ignore other perspectives just based on the identity of who suggests it. Uh, you know, and it and we touch on this a little bit 
again, like the work that folks are doing around human factors is excellent. We need to go much, much deeper. Uh, and that's what my research is showing me is that these perceptions of competence and perceptions that, you know, men take more risks, they're more aggressive, the perception that women take less risks, um, those aren't true. Men and women manage risk um, in very similar ways. There was a study in 2014 on Denali amongst mountain guides on that peak in that climbing season. And it revealed a bit of a gender heuristic trap where um, in that guiding season on Denali, folks perceived that female mountain guides were making more conservative risk management choices than their male peers. But when researchers compared um, you know, the processes and the actual decisions that were made, there was no difference. And so what I've dug into a little bit is visibility of risk-taking. Um, a lot of women in male-dominated fields where you're managing risk, uh, when women manage risk and make a mistake and so have a you know, miss the pickup and have, you know, have an epic and the helicopter has to, you know, whatever, they got to walk their guests out or have, have something happen. There's, you know, social shaming that happens. Usually there's, um, you know, teasing, uh, gendered, you know, teasing, like name calling of certain types, which I'm sure we can all think of. Don't need to say them. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, these types of things create more visibility when women make mistakes. So what, what a lot of folks do is adopt a coping strategy where they hide their risk taking. So they still take risks measurably the same way as their male peers. Um, but they'll, they'll have a kind of coping strategy where they hide their risk taking so that they can avoid being uh, hyper visible and criticized as because they're a minority. Females right now are a minority in the backcountry. Non-binary folks are a minority people of color, Black, Indigenous folks, also minority. And so it's a lot easier for a white cis male to blow it and have his peers, you know, maybe call him a name or two, or you might have to buy beer for everyone, but they're not going to question him in the future. And nor are they going to say that one white male represents all white males everywhere and that all white males are not to be trusted ever. Right. You know, whereas if you have one or two um, and I see this often on teams, like especially, you know, guiding teams or or ski hills where um, firefighting as well. You know, if someone's had a member of a minority um, or someone who is not white or cis male that they've had a quote unquote bad experience with or who hasn't fit with the cultural norms, there often gets created quite a strong story about that entire people group or that entire gender. And so that is why we have these a gender heuristic trap where females are assumed to be, you know, less physically competent, less have less mental toughness in terms of managing risk in really complex environments. And these are these are myths. They're not real, but if we believe them to be true, it really affects as I said, those alternatives. So if you're standing around in a group having a conversation about whether to ski a slope or not, and suddenly, maybe even in small ways or maybe large ways, you trust white cisgender males more, you're going to give more credibility to what they say 
and you will give less credibility to other perspectives, perhaps at your peril. Right. And as a researcher, I've been called in to do, uh, you know, support fatality investigations and in wildfire uh, specifically in the United States. And um, I was part of a team where we we actually, through our investigation, found that um, it was uh, a gender bias that created, contributed in a significant way to a decision-making process that resulted in a fatality. And it was that, you know, there's a, a team of decision-makers and the female on that team had an intuitive feeling but couldn't quite put her finger on why she felt that way, second-guessed herself, you know, kind of went through in her head, like, oh, how could I say, how could I say this? How could I present this alternative to this team of everyone else's is male? Um, and she thought, you know what, I'm going to sound really emotional because I'm just, I'm basing this on intuition. I don't have like a, a strong, rational reason why I just have this gut feeling. And so she didn't say it because right. she was afraid of how it was going to be perceived. And you know what? She was right. Because if she'd spoken up, the fatality would have been uh, prevented. Right. And so that for me, that for me really hits home because it's not, um, you know, I think when folks maybe feel overwhelmed about the complexity of acknowledging white privilege, acknowledging, you know, gender privilege and, the ableism, you know, like the skills side of our our winter sports, and and then you add in like the risk based decision making and teams. It's like, oh gosh, can we just like go skiing and have it be fun and not think about all this? And part of me is like, you know what? That's that's a privileged perspective that you just get to turn your brain off and go to the mountains and and see it as a neutral place where you just you know recharge your batteries and that's it. And it can be that. But it's very much in the best interest of our mountain culture and our mountain communities um, to start doing this work and understanding how, first of all, how exclusive we are, um, in what ways, what we can each individually do to create that change in ourselves, and then also as we treat others, and then also being seeing it in our decision-making practices and, and really catching ourselves, you know, like, am I do I trust that person more because they're tall and have a square jaw and a beard and they're male and they're white, you know, cause like that's statistically, that's, we project competence onto those people. We trust them more sometimes without merit. And we, we trust folks less who don't have that same identity. Right. Uh, and, and really it's, um, it will help our decision-making um, on in small ways, like what slope should I ski? Is this safe? Do I drop in or not? And in large ways, like, can we slot, can we solve the climate emergency in a way that makes sure, you know, glaciers still exist for generations to come for us to ski on, you know? So from every scale of problem solving, we need as many eyes <laughs> and as many perspectives as possible for us to have a better outcome in our decision making. And so that's why, um, you know, it's really like our survival is, is why we need to do that work of unlearning and then relearning. Yeah. I think the unlearning thing, that's the, that's kind of where I was 
I've been thinking about this for the last couple of days, looking over uh, what we were discussing. So I think the one thing I, I wonder about is like, as this moves forward and we hopefully start to move towards a mountain culture that's inclusive is how do you manage the retaliation and the pushback to that concept? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, there's a question of, well, personal safety always comes first. So um, if folks are having these conversations, you know, with themselves, um, with their therapist, with their partners and their family, and then in their broader community, in their workplaces, with their ski buddies, and you're finding that there's a really strong, you know, retaliation and pushback, um, keep yourself safe first, for sure. And that's been, you know, there are folks that um, take this very personally and will defend their privilege, like to the end. <laughs> and, uh, and that, and you know what, there's a number actually about 10 to 15% of a given workforce. This is organizational cultural change. Uh, but usually, you know, when I do work with leaders, you know, I'll sit down with them before COVID and or on Zoom and I can say, <laughs> hey, okay, so there's going to be 10 to 15% of your team that what I call them is like, they're, they've decided they're not able to learn anymore. They're human beings who have just, they're like, that's it. I am what I am. I am not a learning human. You're like, cool. Okay. So if you, if you're deciding that you're a non-learning human, then eventually uh, if you're on a, in a professional team, uh, accountability measures are needed to help those folks realize, you know, you can't wear that jacket. You can't be a member of this team and act in that way. Um, we will support you to learn. We will, you know, the oil and gas industry, what they did is cognitive behavioral therapy for, for managers. <laughs> so they, it was literally like, okay, you are going to do a deep dive into your childhood to where you came from. We will support you do that. We're going to pay for the therapy, but this you know, we can no longer have in the oil and gas industry, it was a, a type of masculinity that refused to see safety. You know, like, I'm not going to wear a hard hat. I'm not going to wear gloves. I don't need, you know, PPE because I'm super tough. Yeah. And people were ashamed if they used the PPE. And so it was just literally the fatality rates coming out of that industry that drove that change. But it was through um, deeply personal change and some folks were able to learn and grow with that industry and others you know there there are times to move on um i think in a personal capacity if you're dealing with a non-learning human um keep yourself safe you know this isn't about uh you know calling someone out unless you feel safe to do so it's it's more around boundary setting i would say you know if you are a learning human and you are going through this change and you're recognizing that your values have shifted and that the people you're around their values have not shifted or or they're stagnating or there's just some dissonance there for you then part of that is being able to let go and and reframe your your friend group your profession um you know your identity and you know, choosing to be on the right side of history is kind of how I want to phrase that, you <laughs> right. know, like we, 
we're in a very catalyzing time where uh, it doesn't really matter what political affiliation you hold. It's it's really like, how do you want to treat other humans? And when we encounter new information, are we able to grow and learn in light of that new information? Or are we so deeply committed to our existing identities and to the status quo that we, we are going to be that non-learning human? You know, our, our nature as human beings, we are constantly changing and growing. Um, you know, some of us are getting more wrinkles by the day. Some of us are growing in inches. You know, it just depends on what, what end of the age spectrum we're at. But we're, we are changing constantly. Um, we are part of nature. Nature is always changing. And so really, you know, one of my meditation teachers um, put it so beautifully, and I often think of this. Uh, she said, it takes effort to remain ignorant, and it takes effort to liberate yourself. Your choice. Right. And wow. I love that because, you know, if you want to be committed to being a non-learning human, that takes effort. <laughs> if you want to look at your, your privilege, you know, uh, examine your values, maybe you have to set some boundaries in, in terms of who you spend your time with or the professional affiliation you have or how you show up. Um, you know, part of that, you know, giving away that privilege, stepping down off that ivory tower um, being willing to be uncomfortable um, in service of inclusivity and learning, you know, that's, that's work too. But I think that puts us on the side of history that is focused on repairing the harm that's been done, restoring right relationships with the environment, with one another, with yourself. Um, and I think it's ultimately where most folks will end up. So I don't, I don't feel the need to really like bring the hammer, you know, when I'm, when I'm creating cultural change or when I'm doing this work, because to me, it's fairly self-evident. And I think that folks are ready for this conversation for the most part. And when, you know, when I speak to leaders and I say that 10 to 15% of folks who aren't going to, going to change, like I'll pause. And usually they have this like look in their eye and I'm like, you're thinking of those people right now, aren't you? They're like, oh yeah, like I know exactly who those people are. And I'm sure folks listening to this podcast are going to be like, oh yeah, so-and-so, you know, and it doesn't mean you need to cut so-and-so out of your life. It might just mean if you're going through some, some values shifting and some learning on these issues for yourself, you might just choose to, um, have some healthier boundaries around what you want to talk about with that person. And, and this is the, this is the thing. It's very liberating to be able to say, you know, I'm, I just don't want to talk about that today or right now, or I'm, you know, that's cool that you think that, but let's just drop it. You know, let's just, let's not go there. Right. And it's, there are times where you want to get into it and you want to help that person see that their behaviors are harming others, you themselves. Um, but if it's not safe for you to do so, and you still want to keep that person in your life, then healthy boundaries are the way to go on totally. that. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Now, do you have any experiences or a story that's, that sticks with you that's changed how you approach backcountry travel and recreating? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought this through because I knew you were going to ask this question. And I was thinking about, you know, the, the close calls and like, you know, I've been supported, you know, some 
avalanche incidents and I had one you know myself recreationally but really I think I think the story that stands out for me and that's changed me the most recently is I actually I had a ski accident last year where I uh binding came off at a bad time and I, I had a big fall I landed on my head and neck and that sustained a serious concussion which I'm still recovering from 13 months later and uh that experience you know I'm still in it so it's hard for me to tell like how much it's really going to change me in the long run but I think it has opened my eyes to how able-bodied our culture is <laughs> and and that I don't know how else to explain that you know it's having a brain injury has made me question myself in some crazy deep ways and it really affected my vision and so I had kind of this like invisible disability and I went from skiing professionally at a, a fairly high level being competent trusting my body trusting myself trusting the mountains trusting my equipment and suddenly I my vision was so impacted that I had to retrain myself how to ski in balance again so I'm at the ski hill you know, all last winter I was doing rehab and skiing super slow. And at one point I remember I was really brave and I'm like, okay, for folks who know Revelstoke Mountain Resort, it's a very steep mountain. And they put in a new chair for beginners. And I was so stoked because it was the first winter it was in and I happened to be injured. And so me and all the little kids are like skiing and, and, uh, um, and I got brave enough to try to ski down the whole rest of the way, the mountain. And I was like, okay, this might take me a couple hours. I'm going to have to take breaks. I can't really see super well. And I had to, I had to pull over on this really steep roll because other skiers were skiing by me really fast and I couldn't see them coming. And it was so disorienting for me. And I had a breakdown. I was crying, you know, <laughs> wearing my goggles and I'm just like, my goggles are all steamy and I'm crying. And I, I just thought, gosh, like, those skiers who are going by me super fast, they have no idea how scared that's making me feel right now. And, and I just realized, you know what, I don't think I've ever thought about how fast I've skied by other people who are skiing slow, like before my injury, mm -hmm. you know, and it was literally that moment, just like pull over on this steep roll and my home hill crying that I thought, gosh, like, I'm really affected by these other people around me. And and when I'm not injured, I am one of those other people who might, you know, do a big high speed, like slash turn and not, you know, over roll and not even really think about it. And so this, I feel like for me, having a, an invisible injury, having a cognitive injury or impairment, like for the first time in my life, not being neurotypical, you know, I, I have some, I'm, I am now, you know, I don't know where, if I'll get to full recovery or where I'll get to with this but I'm I have like a neurodiverse brain right now and that means that I can't see as well as my colleagues and my reflexes are a bit slower and so even as I'm training for ski exams and doing all these things I'm I'm working that much harder um and so that experience has really built more empathy for me and it's helped me connect so much more and really see my privilege, um, you know, previous to my injury, but even still the privilege that I have now, um, you know, because I have access to an amazing medical team and I can train and do rehab and do all, you know, do all the things I need to and access the supports I need to set 
me up to hopefully achieve a full recovery. But, um, you know, I think that every time we suffer, we have an opportunity to learn empathy and to turn that into a way to connect with more people. Um, you know, we can either like numb and shut down our, our pain and build walls, um, whether, you know, it's an avalanche incident or a trauma or a, an injury, or we can take that painful experience and turn it into a, an, an opportunity to connect more deeply with our fellow humans. And uh, yeah, gosh, I will like never look at people skiing slow on the ski hill the same way again. Like I have <laughs> so much respect for how scary it feels, um, you know, when you're at that level and folks around you are not, you know, respecting the, just like the vulnerability of that experience. And so um, it seems really simple and I'm almost even like ashamed to say <laughs> that it, like that I needed this much of a shakeup to connect <laughs> like empathetically. I wish I could have just been, you know, seen that and been more kind without yeah. having this experience. But um, I think it's just really important to share, you know, because we, we are humans we are not invincible we are fragile in a lot of ways and i think we put a lot of energy in the mountains trying to sort of prove our invincibility over and over again and kind of deny our fragility um and i think that this has just been an amazing opportunity for me to really embrace like the vulnerability and fragility and then see that even there like that when you embrace it that's where your true strength is to be able to just be with your vulnerability without needing to armor up like that to me is like, that's the most strength I could ever imagine from a human is being able to be with their vulnerability without armoring up. That's like something I really admire and I'm trying to embody through this journey I'm on right now. Oh, that's, that's a great story. And I, I'm hoping that, and I'm anticipating that the listeners are going to pretty much feel the same way I felt even in your explaining of that entire story. And that's, kind of the premise behind some of the things we discuss is for us to reflect on ourselves and think to ourselves, what is one tool that you wouldn't go into the back country without? And uh, that's the obvious stuff excluded. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one tool that I wouldn't go into the back country without the tool that I'm, I would never go into the back country without it's my self-awareness <laughs> and that might be not an actual physical tool, but I actually, I bring, I always bring something with me, whether it's, um, you know, right now I'm wearing, I wear like a little rose quartz bracelet or I'll sometimes carry a, just a stone or something in my the pocket of my Gore-Tex and whatever it is, a lot of people have different, you know, uh, sacred symbols they bring with them into the mountains. It's like a, a really long tradition. Certainly if you've been on bigger expeditions or, um, you know, gone into the mountains where there's more connection with indigenous culture, there's often like you bring a, something as a symbol of protection and a symbol of, um, safety with you. And so for me, I often have something you know, always this right now, I always have something because I'm facing more vulnerability in myself when I go into the mountains. And so just that little symbol, whatever it is, um, I often like having a rock, something in my pocket I can actually hold on to. And if I'm standing at the top of the line or I'm contemplating, you know, a big like go, no, go decision in a train or, or whatever's happening, um, just like physically touching that 
object helps me tune in with myself and helps me cultivate that self-awareness and helps me just connect with myself. Yeah. So if people were interested in reading about some of the research and, and things that you've done, where, where can they find that? Uh, so the 2019 Avalanche and Guiding Profession Study is available, the full industry report on the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides website under the Diversity and Inclusion tab. Um, all of the other publications that I've done um, are posted on my website, racheldreimer.com, which you can link to in the show notes. And the Wildland Fire Study uh, was published in an open access article so you'll, folks will be able to click on that. Um, there's a link on my website to that. And I do have a publication coming out on mountain leadership in Canada that actually compares wildland fire culture, leadership and gender with the avalanche and guiding profession in terms of culture, leadership uh, and gender. And that was really exciting for me to write because it helped me see my own research in a more holistic lens and it also helped me connect some of the dots around what happens on teams in the mountains in terms of risk management and some of the perceptions we have uh, there that can really get us into trouble if we're not conscious of them in terms of gender and uh, identity within our teams and also really just the scale of how mountain masculinity affects the cultures that we all live, work, and play in when you're immersed in, in mountain culture. Um, so that, for me, those were the two big takeaways from just writing that that chapter, and that'll be available next year. It's coming out in a book uh, published by Routledge, and I'll be sure to provide links to that on my website when it's available. Perfect. That's awesome. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time today to sit down and talk with me and, and share your stories about your research and about who you are and you know, I look forward to hearing more about you and reading more about you as things progress. Amazing. Well, thank you. I'm excited that you're putting the time and energy into this platform and just bringing some Canadian content. And yeah, I'm super excited. So thank you. This is awesome. What an amazing conversation with Rachel. You can find links to the published works and contact info for Rachel in the show notes. Good things always take time. And we're fortunate enough to be a part of a current generation that is recognizing that there needs to be a shift. As challenging as it may seem, these changes will help create a more inclusive and understanding community. I'd like to take this time to thank all the listeners who have supported the podcast over the seasons. And thank you for the words of encouragement and feedback along the way. We are all looking forward to having a little break, but have already began planning for next season. A big thanks to our sponsors for the podcast, MND Safety, Ten Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. If you'd enjoyed the podcast, give it a like and a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite streaming platform. Also, we have a back catalog of episodes that you can enjoy during the summer while we're gone. Finally, a big thanks to Mike T for the artwork and of course, my musical comrade, Chris Kaplinski. Well, that's it. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Enjoy your summer. Be safe. Have fun. Cheers. <laughs>